Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. So the reading today comes from John 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about half a liter of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Mark. Okay, what a beautiful scripture. And we're going to, for the next few minutes, we are going to, we're not going to actually unpack that, we're going to reflect on it. What we're offering this morning is not necessarily a sermon, but it is a reflection on uh, what we see in that uh, passage and uh, some of what we see the Holy Spirit doing at the moment. So again, the background to some of this is observation. It's observation about what God has been doing in our community. For those of you who were at the weekend away um, in February, uh, there was a sense that wasn't new, but it felt intensified of um, passion, I think, uh, in worship and an openness, I think, to engaging and to giving more and more of ourselves in worship. And when I say worship... Obviously, I, I, let me just name this now. I know worship's the whole of our lives. I, I've read Romans 12. <laughs> I've read it. I have. Um, and I am not, when, when we say worship, I, you're just going to have to be generous and understand that we mean both kind of a life lived out for Christ. And we also mean engaging in the, what we're doing here, worshiping him, giving him glory, praise if you like. And praise is about singing, but it's always about much more than that. The two are, in Scripture, the two are linked. It's neither one nor the other. They both kind of uh, enforce one another. Anyway, we've seen, I think, I would say, over the time of being gathered at Trinity, we've seen an intensified hunger and passion for worship. Don, who's in the room this morning, uh, at the the center of the vision, the dream, actually, that God gave him for Trinity was worship. The whole thing was actually that God, and this, this is a dream that's got, if you don't know this, this is a dream that God gave to Don. You can go and ask him about it after he sat at the back there. Wave, Don. 
He's put his head down. He's a fellow with his head down waving. That's Don. <laughs> um, God gave Don a dream years before this church existed, years before this building was in the ownership of the Church of England. And it was a dream that there would be a church. And God then called him to pray that there would be a church. And he came here every single Sunday to pray over this building while it was derelict for over two years. That's the dream. And at the heart of the dream was a people on fire for worship. It was, he said, and I think I've got this, you know, memorized. It was worship of the kind I'd never seen in my life before. That's what he said. I've worshipped with Don. He knows how to worship. So that's the prophetic call over this church. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Now, a prophecy, a dream, they're not, these things are not necessarily um, an indication that it always will be that way, that it's an invitation to intercession. That's what prophecy does. It invites us into something, and we can either choose to partner in that or not. Now, Don partnered because he showed up every week for two, two years, and you're partnering because you're here. But God's intention over this church is to raise up a people and a generation of people beneath us, a generation of revivalists, people that understand worship and give their whole selves to worship. And what we are seeing, not just here, but also across, I think, uh, the West, the parts of the world, there's plenty of worship going on all over the world, but we're seeing, a, I think, a reminder. People are remembering the significance of what it means to bring honor to God. So the, some of you will know about this uh, renewal outpouring in Asbury. Uh, just a, if you don't know, it's just a, uh, a college, they call it, a university in America. And um, what happened was a, a group of students, uh, somebody preached a really bad sermon. If you've never heard that, you, you, you're in the middle of one. Happens a bit like this. <laughs> Somebody preached a really bad sermon. And at the end of it, just hurt because all the kids were standing up in the middle of this chapel, compulsory chapel. They were standing up in the middle of it. And they had to leave to go to their classes. So everyone was leaving. And as this person kind of finished the sermon in a hurry because they knew they were running over. And uh, everybody left except for a few students who just felt so compelled by the Holy Spirit that they ran to the front and fell down at the altar, began to pour out their hearts in confession and repentance. And, if, and a few hours later, they were still there. And what had happened is that lots of the students who left felt the Holy Spirit calling them back. And so they returned back to the, the, the room, back to the altar. And more and more students were gathering as the Spirit was leading them. And as they were sensing what God was doing in this campus... And a few hours later, it was about three or four in the afternoon, there was a couple of hundred people uh, who had gathered to worship. And uh, somebody who I heard speak about it, who was involved in kind of stewarding it, they said, we knew it was real when one young girl stood up. And she had offended every single person on the campus. And she stood up in front of everybody and she just... She just opened her heart. She said, look, I've... I've done so much wrong to so many of you. I, I tried to end my own life last week. My parents just been divorced. My life is a mess. I know I've offended you all. I'm so sorry. And she fell down and wept. And the whole group just gathered around her and prayed over her. And this began just a season. Of, I think it went on for a couple of weeks. 
Um, and then they, they stopped it, actually, uh, and they've kind of released it in different places of just intense worship. Notice, <laughs> this is just the intro. I mean, um, not good worship, not excellent worship. If, if, if we mean tight melodies and harmonies, like pretty rubbish by kind of, you know, X factor standards. But by heaven's standards, extraordinary worship. And God, God demonstrated that it was extraordinary worship by inhabiting it with his presence. That's the sign of good worship. When, God, when Jesus loves the worship, he shows up. That's how he does it. He inhabits it with his presence. And so he did that in Asbury. And, and, and it was my favorite. You know, I've said this to you before, I think. But many, many famous worship leaders and, and pastors gathered and many of them asked if they could, you know, bless the congregation with a song. And they were all politely refused. Because <laughs> uh, the students had got it. They knew. They were carrying it. They captured the centrality of worship. And I think the question for us as a church, because we're seeing moments of breakthrough, I think. And then I don't know about you, but one week I feel like we're on the very cusp of revival. And the next week I feel like, is anyone awake? <laughs> Myself included. I think the question for us and the question we want to look at for the next eight minutes is how can we steward, how can we press in to what God is doing and what he wants to do in this place, remembering Don's dream, without collapsing into striving? It's so easy to go into striving. And that's awful because all you do then is you guarantee it will be a work of man and it will burn out. We only want a work of the Spirit, but we do want to be attentive to the Holy Spirit. So that's really the question. And if it's of Him, it's sustainable. If it's of, it's, if it's of the flesh, it's absolutely exhausting, and nobody gets healed, nobody gets transformed, nobody's lives get changed. You don't want any part of any of that. It's not about shouting louder and singing louder. There will be moments we'll all shout and sing. I've got no question about it. But it's not about that. It's about much, something much deeper. And so, Amy... Yes, so Johnny and I, maybe even um, two Sundays ago, uh, we were having that exact conversation. I think we were driving home from <clears throat> the evening service, and we were saying it's, it's, it's strange that, you know, within staff meetings and um, worship and weights and Sundays, you can feel like, oh, man, we're like really, you know, going for it. We're going to, you know, we're really breaking through, you know, sort of taking ground. And then, like Johnny said, other times, you know, it feels harder, and I'm like, come on, soul, wake up, you know. Um, and so we were just having that conversation, and we were like, oh, what is that? How do we navigate that? <clears throat> and that night, <clears throat> I um, had a dream. Um, and in my dream, I don't know, this is probably, this is all slightly strange, but in my dream, I was preaching, like, I thought, the most incredible sermon ever. <laughs> I was like going for it in my dream. I was like, Durr! and uh, and I remember, you know, in my in my sleep, I was like, oh, I need to note this down. This is a really good preach. Uh, anyway, and it's never quite as good as it when you wake up in the morning. <laughs> You're like, wasn't that great? But anyway, 
I was preaching uh, this message, and it was all about worship. So in my dream, I was preaching about worship, um, and I was saying, I was like, God's not looking for perfection. He's not looking for um, great musicianship. He's not looking for, you know, it to be smooth and slick. He wants our hearts. You know, he wants our hearts. It's just our hearts. It's just our hearts. And I was going on and on about this in my dream. And uh, but I remember saying, and this is what came to me in the morning, I remembered it really clearly, as I, as I said, he wants our hearts and he wants these three things. And they were very clear when I woke up. The first thing he wants from us is our devotion, because it all is a measure of our heart. He wants our devotion, our hum- humility, and wildness. And so I woke up in the morning and I was like, oh, okay, I feel like the Lord has spoken. I feel like he's saying to me, that he, he's saying to me ultimately that all he wants is our hearts cry and they manifest in those three areas. And so do you know what? We take the prophetic seriously. You know, we, we take God speaking to us in these ways seriously. And so instead of just being like, oh, that was a crazy dream, you know, actually, let's take it seriously. If the Lord is saying it's all about our hearts, then let's dive in. What, what is it? What does it look like to actually intentionally explore those three things as we ask the Lord to unveil our hearts and make them pure before him? Because those that have a pure heart will see God, right? And I want to see God. So I want that for myself. So that's what we're going to do, basically. And then we're going to pray and worship. Yeah. That's so, the plan. So beginning with devotion, we've, we've already read, haven't we, Mary anointing Jesus. And um, hopefully you've, you've done the math so you can connect uh, what Amy said about devotion with this extraordinary, stu- truly stunning story of devotion. Here we have Mary who has just seen Jesus um, resuscitating her brother Lazarus, coming to Jesus six days before the Passover and quite literally pouring out all that she has over Jesus' feet um, and anointing his feet with this perfume, which is extremely costly, a manifestation, as Amy's about to say, of wildness, but also of devotion anointing his his feet, wiping them with her hair, you know, really embracing some measure of scandal uh, and and as a manifestation of her her devotion, simple devotion to Jesus, simple but but stunning, but deep, but rich, Um, a pound of nard, a pound of perfume, and a pound is about a pint. So for some of you who don't know pounds, but you know what a pint is. <laughs> let, the, let the listener understand. Imagine not a, a pint of John Smith's or whatever else, but a pint of costly perfume. This would have been a year's wage. I think it says in the text, or if it doesn't, it says elsewhere. A, a year's wages. What a stunning act of devotion. I don't know what a year's wage is. I don't know what the minimum wage is, but stretch that out over a year. It's a decent chunk of change. You know, is this her life savings? Some scholars say this may be her dowry. So here she is offering her future, potentially. Her hopes for marriage, potentially. And, and it is a stunning act, an outpouring of devotion. It is uh, Mary choosing to go all in. And I think that's what devotion is, isn't it? You're devoted to something if you're willing to go all in on it. If you are devoted to a person... 
devoted to an idea, a project. You see this with house renovation so much, don't you? Like how all-encompassing these sorts of things can be. You know, our lives as we're devoted to our children or our close friends or our spouse or similar. We, we demonstrate devotion with the amount of attention and energy expended or that thing or that, on that thing or that person. And here Mary, I think, is this outpouring of of perfume. The perfume is is not that the value of the perfume is not measured by what it cost in pounds or denarii. The value of the perfume is is really measured by the cost in devotion. And Jesus receives it as worship. It is a beautiful picture. And you know, there's a there's a secret of worship in this story. And here's the secret. Worship is primarily, it is first and foremost about ministering to Jesus. That's really important. Because if you are a human, and I'm looking around and most of you are, then you understand that, as John Calvin said, that the heart is a perpetual factory of idols. The human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. That, That means that humans... By nature, we get mistaken and we confuse things often. So we, we begin a journey, let's say the journey of a human life, with the intention that our lives or our days or our weeks or whatever are going to be about worshipping God. And quite quickly, we just slightly, by degrees, lose our direction. And by degrees, lose our direction. But over the course of a life, that's quite a distinct departure from our original direction. And that happens in worship. So we begin with this notion that worship is about ministering to Jesus. And quite quickly, we lose the focus on that. And we begin to behave often, if you're anything like me, as if worship is about me. And worship becomes more than about me, what I get from it, rather than what I'm bringing to it. And it becomes, really, what happens is that Christian worship collapses into the narrative of the culture around consumerism. Our culture says, I consume, therefore I am. And we can bring that mindset, because we're baptized into that mindset as soon as we're born. We can bring that mindset to church. We can bring that mindset to our lives of discipleship. And actually what we see here is that the, the dev- a devoted worship is worship that's poured out for the sake of Jesus. It's about ministering to him. And that means whether we like the songs. And folks, some of you fed back to me, you don't like all the songs. That's all right, neither do I. Now, I'm in the privileged position of being able to tell Neil when I don't like them and telling him not to do them again. And sometimes he listens. And I'm glad, I'm glad that he doesn't always listen because this, because this isn't just about my desire. Sometimes it's his job to tell me to buzz off. And he does, very kindly, by saying, okay, boss. Okay, no. But this isn't, this isn't about what we get from it. Now, It's about what we're bringing to it. Our job is to pour the perfume that is in our souls, the costly nard that you and I have, out upon Jesus' feet. That's the gig. That's the game. That's the thing we're doing. We're ministering to Jesus. That means it's costly. Now, I heard a great story about what costly, devoted worship looks like. Devoted, love-filled worship. It's an analogy, really, because it's a story about my cousin Tim. Now, Tim is a... A worship leader, he's written a couple of good songs over his career, and you know, he's got a few left in him, I think. Just a wonderful leader, person, great friend. Uh, he leads Gas Street with Rachel, his wife, 
Amy's sister, spend the rest of the sermon figuring out how that's not incestuous. <laughs> um, it isn't, <laughs> by the way. Um, it was his son Simeon's fifth birthday. And Simeon had really got into the Lion King in a big way. And they were living in London at this time, so they decided to take Simeon to the Lion King show on, at the West End. Phenomenal. Uh, some of you have seen it. I've heard it's very good. So there they were about to set off, and Simeon says, five-year-old Simeon says, Mom, Dad, just the three of them, why don't we wear our Lion King onesies? Why don't we wear our Lion onesies? Now, Tim had accommodated to the fact that they were going to buy onesies. And that was a, a scandalous enough, but had no intention of ever wearing it outside the house. And so Tim uttered these words, No, son, unfortunately we can't, because it's illegal to wear lion costumes on the tube. <laughs> Which is, if you're interested, is a lie. Rachel wasn't impressed. And Tim could see that this wasn't going the way that he'd hoped. And so they boarded the tube at Putney, the three of them wearing lion costumes. <laughs> they ran into all number of people, in, including Sebastian Coe. <laughs> I don't know what Sebastian thought. They arrived at the, at the show, uh, at the theatre. Just the three of them. The, the chap who let them in said, in all my years... <laughs> On the Lion King, I have never seen anyone coming in a Lion King onesie. Here, Tim is in his mid-30s with a Lion King onesie. It's just a beautiful act of devotion. At one stage, they were there in the, in the foyer, and Rachel took Simeon to the toilet. At which point, Tim was horrified as he realized that he was in the middle of the Lion King on his own, wearing a Lion King onesie. Why would you do that except for devotion? Except for devotion to your five-year-old son. And I think there's a picture there of what it might look like for us to be devoted to Christ in our worship. If the pure nard wasn't enough, remember Tim and his Lion King costume. I mean, these three things really all link together, don't they? But I, sort of moving on to wildness, um, even if you think about, I mean, how um, costly, as Johnny said, for, for the woman, Mary, to pour her year's wages um, on the feet of Jesus and to, uh, you know, bring down her hair, which was so um, sort of not done in that culture and um, come before all those men and be rebuked and, you know, sort of, yeah, criticized, you know, that's all so hugely costly, isn't it? Her worship, um, if, you, if you just picture the, the room, it's like, oh, you know, it's so incredible, isn't it? Um, and I think part of what I feel like God was trying to say in the dream is these three things, but it's like how, like he wants to shift our hearts. I think that's the point. He wants to shift our hearts into, um, into being um, just, so open before him. Um, he wants us to have soft hearts, not sort of protected hearts, hearts that are given over. And I think the wildness piece when it comes to costly worship is I think being wild for him is how our hearts are shifted. Um, because for me, as I've been praying about this and thinking about it, 
I feel like the wildness is the, um, the sacrifice of worship. You know, she went into that room. She didn't, give a, well, she didn't give a monkeys what these people thought that really didn't think great things about her. You know, how many of us, if we're really honest, we come into church and we are so preoccupied with the people around us? You know, I am. You know, at times they're like, oh, you know, I can't, you know, oh, I can't do that, or I can't move this way, or I can't shout here, or I can't, you know, because it's like, oh, well, people think I'm crazy. You know, how many people, how do we share that, right? I'm not on my own. Um, and he doesn't want that for us. You know, he wants us like Mary that's going to walk in and be like, I'm unhindered. I'm here to worship you with my full heart. And that is costly. And it isn't like one day you're going to rock up and it's going to be like, Ta-da! I'm not hindered. It's, a, it's an act of wild worship. It is an act of sacrificial worship that we step into. You know, for some of us, um, really honestly, for some of us, it might be just standing up <laughs> through the singing. It might be even just singing. For some of us, it might be like opening up your hands as a way of saying, I'm opening my heart up to you, Lord. That might be really costly. It doesn't matter what it is. It might be screaming and yelling. It might be being quiet. You know, whatever it is between you and the Lord, what is your sacrifice of praise? What is your sacrifice of worship? And it's between he and he and you. And then our hearts begin to mold, you know, they begin to open, they become, they become unhindered as we intentionally step into that wild, costly, sacrificial worship. And I think as I have been reflecting on it, um, I think it's so easy, um, I think it's so easy to get stuck, I think, in, like you're saying, that sort of consumerist, you know, like, oh, I'm, I'm coming and I, I'm not really getting much out of this, so I'm just going to not engage um, or whatever it is for you, and I think, and I think the, um, I think one of the other um, real challenges is the when you when you come to the church or whenever you're worshiping or whatever that your your life looks like, and you all you want to do is something else, like the idea of singing because you're going through a really hard time or you're disillusioned or God hasn't come through in the way that you, that he, you thought he might. And you just are like, I am like struggling to sing these songs. I, th- I think there is something so unbelievably powerful and precious when the Lord knows that in your heart and you usher those words anyway. And I think the Lord does a, a, a transformational work in our hearts when we can sing in, in pain, when we can sing in disappointment. Um, and so I guess if you're sitting here and you're in that zone, I, I guess my encouragement is to you, there is, a, there is something beautiful God wants to do in that season as you push through um, in your devotion and praise. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, and it just reminded with that wildness point before we move on to our final point, just that um, somebody has described worship as performing for the audience of one. And I think that's an important shift in mindset, isn't it? Um, it strikes me that in this text, Judas is the one who's counting the cost. He's the, he's the one who's, who's trying to penny pinch, quite literally, stealing. Um, what is he stealing? Ultimately, he's, he's stealing from what belongs to Jesus. And our worship belongs to Jesus. It's his. He made us. He made us for a purpose to worship him. And so when we don't bring, when we don't press into the, what it costs us, we, we're actually, 
we're robbing yeah. God. We're robbing what belongs to him, which is the praise of his people. So finally, third point. Third point from Amy's dream. Um, I don't know if this is as good in real life as it was in your dream, love. Have we let you down? I don't know. But third point is humility. There's something really, really powerful about humility. Um, it seems to be superpower, super source in the kingdom. Uh, God resists the proud and embraces the humble. It, that occurs at least twice in Scripture. Um, just that God, God's turned off by pride. Really doesn't like it. Um, because pride in its own nature is, is an attitude of resistance to God. Pride is resistance to God. And so God cannot, I don't think God can do anything but resist that. That is resistance to him. It's like two, two negative ends of a, of a um, magnet being pushed together. They just, they just erupt away from each other. But humility attracts him. He loves it. You know, look at the humility of, of Mary, mother of Christ. You know, let it be to me according to your word, just receiving what God wants to do, opening her life, opening her heart, opening her womb to what God wants to do. And this woman, this other Mary, does the same, doesn't she? She comes with this humble attitude. And, you know, uncovering her hair and, you know, for hair is a symbol of glory. Here she's kind of laying down her glory. It's a bit like that picture in Revelation of the elders throwing down their crowns. Here she is offering and, and bowing before Jesus to wash. I mean, by, just think about it. She's pouring perfume. She's wiping his feet with her hair. How can she do that except by bowing low? By bowing low before him, by on her knees just ministering to him in this posture of humility. And whenever there's worship in Scripture that's meaningful and ministers to God, it's, it's humble worship. I think of uh, King David. I mean, this really fits with Amy's point about wildness. It fits with the first point about worship, uh, devotion, and it fits with this one, I think, about humility. Uh, you know when the Ark of the Covenant comes back to Jerusalem, and um, David uh, tries first the first time hastily, and uh, Uzzah kind of reaches out, touches the ark, and dies. And so they try again, and every six steps they sacrifice a whole host of animals. He really goes kind of belt embraces the second time. And I don't know, they arrive into Jerusalem. I don't know if it's just because David's so excited that they've made it and nobody's died. And he just gets giddy in God's presence. And he strips off down to his ephod, which I imagine to be his undies. I don't know, I've never seen an ephod. Um, but, uh, you know, he strips down, really. And it's scandalous to see a king in this, in this state. And he strips down not to make a spectacle of himself, but to make a spectacle of God. And Saul's uh, daughter, who's married to him, Michal, she says, how can the king behave like this in the presence of the people? And David says, I'll become even more contemptible, undignified than this. I'll be abased in my own eyes. But I'm going to praise God. I'm going to worship God. And this is posture of humility. And David carried this through his life. And he carried this through his life in his greatest victories. And he carried this in his life in his real, real failures. You know, Psalm 51 is just, a, I suppose, an outpouring of praise and confession and just a moment of devastation. 
But there is a line in that psalm that I think encapsulates what we're trying to say. David says, The offering of a broken and contrite heart, you, Lord, will not despise. And to speak to that group that Amy's just mentioned, the brokenhearted among us, for you, you need to understand that that brokenheartedness is actually attractive to Jesus. It is a highway. It's a, it's a highway into his presence. And if you will open that to him, you will, you will experience his presence. You, that will be worship to him in a way that those of us who think we have it all together and are kind of proudly preening our way through church, showing everybody our best face, we're never going to access that. You know, blessed are the brokenhearted, blessed are the pure in heart, they'll see God, blessed are those who weep, blessed are those who mourn. You know, there's an image and a vision here, isn't there, what it means to be the people of God in that way. So, Humility, wildness, devotion, they're all really uh, an invitation to press in, to step in, in a new way, to a costly worship. We have some time uh, just now uh, to worship, but I'd just love us to pray firstly, and uh, we're going to pray, and just pray into some of what we've said, and then in a few moments, we're going to stand, and we're going to worship. We're not going to strive You don't have to shout. We don't have to scream. We're just going to worship. We're going to minister to Jesus in whatever way uh, that looks like for us. We're going to perform for the audience of one. But as we pray, Jesus, we remember Mary. Just remember how that must have blessed you, Jesus. We long to worship like that. But we can't love you unless you help us. Only, Jesus, only you love the Father and the Spirit in the way they deserve to be loved. Spirit, only you love the Father and the Son in the way that they deserve worship. Father, only you love Jesus and the Spirit in the way they deserve to be worshipped. You have to show us how to love you. Otherwise, we simply can't do it. And so we ask you to do that. We ask you, we do ask you to break us like that, like the, the whatever container there was for that costly perfume, whatever that container was, as it was smashed, it released the aroma. God, would you do that with us? Break us 